Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. This week, the Pope decided to have a kumbaya right there in Iraq, which is interesting because he wanted to go to the home of Abraham, of Ur of the Chaldees. So they had this big kumbaya in Ur of the Chaldees, and that's about 200 miles south of Baghdad or even where the Tower of Babel was. He wanted to unite all the Abrahamic faiths, he called them, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, and then anyone else as well in this big ecumenical, we worship the same God type of mentality event. That being the case, what I want to bring to mind is prophetically, that's where it's all going. It's going back to the Middle East, the Tower of Babel, all those things will eventually be the headquarters for the Whore of Babylon, and it will be the headquarters for the Antichrist. So when you start seeing the Pope, who is probably the leading candidate, if if there is one, for the false prophet, who will unite all the world religions together... When you see an activity like that by the Pope, bear in mind that it's on the level of a stair step to the bigger reality. Now, we won't know if the Pope is the false prophet or not because we'll be raptured, but I'm telling you what, this guy has the power, the influence, and the money to do something like that. And so be watchful of this guy. I can't be 100% sure, but boy, he's leading the charge on that stuff. So everything's going back to Babylon. The second thing to watch also is how the United States now has taken a different policy towards Israel and now wanting to force Israel into some type of two-state solution. And that comes smack dab in the middle of the Abrahamic covenant and comes up against it because you're not to divide the land of Israel. And so now when you have politicians trying to divide the land of Israel, you can expect the cursing aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. I will curse those who curse you, and I will bless those who bless you. Dividing Israel's land is cursing Israel. So now the Biden administration, all these other crazy politicians, want to go headlong right into the Abrahamic covenant and making Israel go to a two-state solution. So that's not good for our country. Obviously, you and I are believers, and we're not doing it, so we're preserved from that. But any wrath the United States sees... It will be, that will be one of the reasons if you see stuff start happening in the United States supernaturally. That leads us into where we want to go today in the scriptures. And we're going to be in Exodus chapter 16. We're looking at the provision of manna and taking that apart. I've entitled this The Message in the Provision. Everybody knows the story of the manna, how bread came from heaven and fed the Israelites for 40 years. Everybody knows that story. But we want to take it one step further. We want to drill down into understanding what the manna symbolically meant and the message that God was sending to Israel, because it's going to be apropos for you and I. So I want to make sure that everybody has a handout. When you came in, that you should have been given a handout about the typology between Messiah and manna. Messiah himself made this point in the Gospels, in the Gospel of John. He basically said he was the true bread from heaven. So manna is a typology of the Messiah. And what I did is I listed all those typologies as much as I could. There's other things that are different than Jesus, 
Uh, I didn't list those, like the manna ran out after 40 years. Jesus never runs out, you know, he's eternal. And so there's differences between manna and Jesus. But obviously I wanted to show you the comparisons because it points to the Lord. And I'll get more into it as we go on in detail to bring those nuances out. So we understand it's a typology, but where I want to go with this is what is the message of the manna? What is Israel supposed to learn? Because it's a message of how to receive provision from God. And that's going to be apropos for you and I. You and I are going to ask God for provision. We're going to ask Him for help. We're going to ask Him to help us with whatever. I don't know what it could be finances, it could be schooling, it could be your job, whatever it might be, your plans. You're going to ask for help. And the Lord does promise that He will meet our needs. He does promise this. But there are going to be prerequisites and criterias, if you want to say, of how to receive that provision and then how to handle it afterwards. You have to go beyond that and say, why? That's where the maturity starts coming in. Because God will provide for you. And you can praise God for it, and you should, but then you have to ask him, why did he provide that for you? Or why didn't he provide? That becomes a question that deals with spiritual maturity later on. And that's what he's trying to get Israel to do. Why am I putting you through all the prerequisites, Israel, of getting the manna? All the laws involved in getting the manna, I'm going to make you do in order to get this provision. Why? Well, they'll have time to contemplate it on their Sabbaths, thinking about it. And so now I want to dig into the manna. I want to drill down on the meaning of it and the messaging he was trying to send to Israel because I think it'll fit for us in our modern day and time. Exodus 16, verses 4, just a quick review of this. But And the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day. Now, let me give you uh, what the quota is. Later on in the passage, in the end of this chapter, the quota is two quarts. They are to take two quarts of manna every day. No less, no more. That's it. That's one of the stipulations, the manna laws, is that every day you will gather two quarts. And then the question becomes, how will you gather this? Will you do with a rake, a shovel, some type of instrument? No, no instruments. You will have to get on your knees and hand pick it. Because as you'll see later on in the text, uh, probably next week, The manna is very delicate. It is like a flaky kind of coriander seed. It's delicate. It actually appears inside of dew. And once the dew disappears, then the flakiness is there. And it's so delicate, it has to be picked by hand. Why? See, that's the question we all have to ask. What is he teaching Israel? Number one, Israel, you have to get on your knees every morning, like I showed you two weeks ago, and handpick this stuff. What is he trying to teach them? Humility. You will get on your knees in order to receive provision. See, one of the prerequisites about receiving God's provision is you must be humble. Now, remember, manna is a picture of Christ. What must you do in order to have faith in the Messiah? Pride? No. Humility. You have to see your own spiritual poverty to see the need of the provision. 
So that's why God convicts you and I of sin, righteousness, and judgment so that we will see a need for the provision. So we have to be humbled first. Our pride must be broken in order to see that Jesus is the provision we need. If that pride will not be broken, the person won't see the need for Jesus. Now, the principle then for you and I is this. If you want God to help you in providing for you, you must do it with an attitude of humility. You can't do it with an attitude of, I demand, I deserve, you better, I want my life to go this way. When you come to God like that, you can expect a big fat zero because you're approaching God in pride and demanding of him rather than on your knees taking the provision as it comes. Let me give you one further thing to think about as far as the prerequisites. You and I must accept the provision in how it comes and how it looks and how the form is and what you're to do with it. What do you mean by this? This manna from heaven came in an unsuspected way. It forced Israel every day to, as their first priority, to get up in the morning and gather it. Because if they waited too long, it would burn off. And so every day they had to get up, except on the Sabbath, and they had to get up and do it. Now, what this was teaching them is to understand their priorities of their life, that their priority must be God in getting his provision. So in order to get his provision, you have to be humble and you must make him the priority of your life. And that's how the provision comes. Now, this started irritating the Israelites. They start complaining about it. They're, they're complaining right now in Moses' case, okay? They're going to complain about the manna, and it's going to be a thing where they actually start getting tired of it. They, they get tired of the work for it. They get tired of the provision. Let me add the understanding spiritually what's what was happening with Israel. Those who do not see their spiritual poverty, those who want it their way, don't typically like the provision that God provides because it doesn't look like what they thought it would look like. It doesn't appeal to them. It doesn't make sense to them. And it's at a certain amount. It's at the right amount, no more, no less. It's right there. And so a lot of people and even Christians will reject the provision of God because they don't like how it looks. They don't like the form it takes. And they don't like what it is required of them to get it. So for instance, let's do a manna, Jesus typology. What is predicted about the Messiah and how he will appear? Did he appear as a handsome man and everyone would be gravitated to his charisma and they would see his charisma and they see what the Messiah looked like and they would just instantly gravitate to him and they say, aha, here's the Messiah. Or would, that's what they did with Saul, remember, Saul? And, or would they look at David and say, that's a short runt. We don't want him. Remember, David's dad didn't even bring him in, for goodness sake. Oh, we don't want that guy. He's just a little run out there. What was the point about this? What did Isaiah say about Messiah? That he had no comeliness about him in which we would be attracted to him. 
He didn't look like this dazzling human being that just simply attracted you. He looked like an average man. And nothing would have attracted to you had you seen him physically. But when you heard him speak, you would have known. But just looking at him from afar, you would have seen nothing attractive about him. That's manna. Now, when the religious leaders got more in-depth on this, and they started questioning the Messiah, they finally figured out, oh my goodness, this is the Messiah, but we don't want his provision. You know why? Three things. It's real simple. The religious leaders, not all of Israel, but the religious leaders rejected Messiah based on three things. They liked their money, they liked their power, and they liked their prestige among the people. Those are the three objects you will see all through the Gospels that Jesus nails them on. They refused to accept the provision of the Messiah because in doing so, they would have to give these three things up and they didn't want to do it. Therefore, they rejected God's provision because they didn't like how it looked. It stripped them of their worldly power. So you see how that works with manna and with the Messiah. You have to have a taste for manna. And the only way to have this taste is to know your spiritual poverty, is to be humble, is to be willing to give up things. What did Israel give up? They gave up storing food. They gave up hunting for food. They gave up foraging for food because God said, I'll provide it. You just need to sit there and do what I tell you to do and I'll provide it. They had to give up things in order to do it. They couldn't sleep in any day except on the Sabbath. They had to get up early and do it. There was requirements. So my point is, that's the messaging in the manna. On your personal life, you're going to ask God to help you. And here's the funny thing. When he does send the help, it will be counterintuitive to you. And you're like, I didn't expect this. Yeah, because you had in your mind how you thought God would provide for you, right? And this is how he's going to do. I'm going to have a rich uncle one day die and leave me a million dollars. And then my life will be great. And that's how usually people think is that, um, yeah, I'm going to get some windfall of money and everything's going to be great. And, and I'm going to sell off into the sunset. Not going to happen. It's not going to happen. He will provide, but in ways that you never thought it would come that way. And you have to be okay with the form and the timing and the requirements necessary to receive that provision. Some people pray for a job. I need to make ends meet. You're right. You do. You pray to the Lord. Lord, I need a job. And then the job comes, but it's not the kind of job they want. Then what? Well, I don't know if I want to do that. This is a job working at the bowling alley, and I have to wax the lanes. Does it pay the bills? Yeah. Were you praying that God would provide for you? Yeah. But I don't want to work at the bowling alley. I don't want to set up pins. I don't want to wax the floor. Do they even have bowling alleys anymore? I don't know. (laughs) We have a couple, right? They have fish and chips at the Westchester Bowl, right? That's a good thing about it even though I'm gluten intolerant, they would kill me uh, on the spot. Nonetheless, but you, you, you understand the point, though, that, okay, you're praying for God to deliver something, and he does deliver, and it's working at the bowling alley. Uh, maybe let's fry in the fish and chips. And you're going to look at that and say, I didn't want to do that. I wanted a managerial position. 
Oh, you prayed, he provided that, and you're turning your nose up to the provision. Okay, gotcha. Why won't they accept the provision of working at the bowling alley? I'm better than that. You know I have a college degree. Every 26-year-old that's went to college, they all say that. They think they should be CEOs at 25. So it's beneath them to fry fish at the bowling alley or work at Starbucks or flip burgers. I got a college degree. Well, guess what? You don't have a job. That's the only job available. Go work at Taco Bell and do it until something else opens. But what is the point? God is providing. I'll provide it. And what is the principle? I'll provide, and if you're faithful in a few things, I will put you in charge of many things. I just need you to be... Are you okay working at In-N-Out or Burger King or any of these burgers uh, places, flipping burgers and doing it faithfully? You have to be. You say, I'm providing. That's how I'm providing. Just continue on. That I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Now, the law is the manna law, not the Sinai law. Uh, the Mosaic covenant has been instituted, but this will be transferred into the Mosaic covenant later on of how to handle the manna because it keeps going for 40 years. So, again, the test is, can they handle the manna law, then be given the Mosaic law of 613 commands? So, here's the idea. If God provides in a little way here... Are you faithful in handling that and doing everything he says? Because if you are, he will add to that later on and expand it over here. But you won't get here until you are faithful here. That's how it works. That's how it works. So people come to me and they want to do grand things in ministry. All right, yeah, you, you, you know... I, I think the Lord's calling me to ministry. I think the Lord's going to make me a pastor. I think the Lord's going to do... Oh, great. You know what? What do you need, Brandon, for me to do? You want me to preach a certain... No, I need you to clean the bathroom back there when we're done. Oh, I, I don't do that. I, I want to get my delicate little hands. I just had them manicured. I, I can't clean the bathrooms. If you're not willing to clean the bathrooms, why would I put you in a position of leadership? What are you, crazy? You start on the bottom. And a servant serves anywhere. A servant says, Lord, if you want me to stand on my head over here on the wall and sing zippity-doo-dah all day, I will do it. Just tell me how long I need to do it. That's a servant. And servants who are faithful in a few things will be put in charge of many things. That's how it works. You don't get to jump to the top. Let's continue on. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in And it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. So no Sabbath law at this point, but again, it's manna law. So it's it's a a creation Sabbath, so to speak, because it harkens back to creation where God rested on one day. But what does he want Israel to do during this day? Just sit there and and, and relax? Well, that's part of it. They need a time to a break. But the point is to ask why. The Sabbath was made for men to contemplate God theologically without any distractions. That's the point of the Sabbath. And so they're to ask the questions. Why does he give the manna in dew? Why is the manna sandwiched between dew? Why does the manna come at night and then appears in the morning? Why does the manna disappear in the heat of the day? 
Why did we have to pick up the manna at this point in time? All those are good questions, and there are theological answers for it, and they're supposed to learn that. That's why he's given them a day off to contemplate theologically. Ask yourself, have you taken your own Sabbath, so to speak? And and I'm not saying take a day off, but in the Sabbath mindset, have you taken time to consider where you're at? Consider where you're at with God in the times that we're in. Where are you at? I know hustle and bustle keeps us from thinking about where we're at, and we just got to get to the next appointment, next event, next experience, and we're going boom, 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 and you just keep doing this, and you never think, where are you at? Where is your spiritual walk? Where are you going? It's just one activity after another, one activity after another, and you can get caught up in this rat race and forget what's happening. Do you take a Sabbath and think through, what am I doing? Where am I at? Where does God want me to be? Continue on. Then Moses said to the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, now why would he have to say that? They already knew that, right? But what is he reemphasizing? It's the idea is that, yes, Yahweh is the only God that could take you out of Egypt. Yahweh is the only God that, that could part the Red Sea. And Yahweh is the only one that can supply your needs. No other foreign God can do this. Somebody did the math on this. If there's two million Jews in the desert with Moses, if you, if you say two quarts per person a day, you end up every day, God supplying nine million pounds of manna per day. Then you, if you convert that into tons, it is 4,500 tons of manna per day. Now, the point that Moses is trying to make with Israel, hey, there are no other gods that can do this. There are no fallen angels or demons that can split the sea, get you out of Egypt, and provide 4,500 days, or sorry, tons, for 40 years per day. That is Yahweh's doing this, no other foreign god. And unfortunately, like I talked to you about the Pope, this guy wants to unite all the ancient religions together and say, no, we all worship different gods, and we're all cool, and you have your way, and I have way. No! Moses is telling Israel, there is no other gods. Yahweh is the one true God, and that's it. Nothing else. And so with that being said, what you're seeing now is a reversal of, 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 of what we had here in America now going back to more of a one-world, multi-god religion. Polytheism is going to now take hold in American culture. Sad, isn't it? Let's continue on. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord. That's the Shekinah. Now, the Shekinah is going to appear again, his presence. This is, God is invisible, so his presence is, is seen physically by, for us as a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. So he's going to come and show him his presence, their, his presence. Notice what the next phrase says. For he hears your complaints against the Lord. Now, first of all, God knows and hears everything they're complaining about. He knows what's going on in their tents. I can't believe God took me out in the desert like this. I can't believe my life has turned out this way. I, I, I'm a victim. I'm a victim. I'm a victim. I can't believe Moses did what he did. Him and Aaron are the stupidest people in the world. 
It's going on in the tents. It's going all in the tents. And God is saying, I heard what you said. Remember at 9.05, you complained about Moses? I heard that. You know when you said that about Aaron, that he's a knucklehead? Yeah, I heard that. And then I heard your charge against me. So I'm going to come in my presence to you, and you're going to see me in the presence. But notice what the phrase says. Look closely. He, Yahweh, hears your complaints against Yahweh. Did Moses mess up the Hebrew? Yahweh has heard your complaints against another Yahweh. That's not a mistake. It's all through the Hebrew Bible. You'll see passages like this. That's why the Jews had a a two Yahweh theory. One was the word of Yahweh and the other one was Yahweh. So they had, they, they, they couldn't, they couldn't grasp a lot of times what was going on in the text. But I think now you and I now understand it looking back. Who is the pillar of the cloud and the fire? Which Yahweh is it? The second person of Yahweh, the Messiah, is the pillar of cloud. Jesus is the one who led him through the desert. Jesus is the one who issued the plagues. Jesus is the one who split the Red Sea. And Jesus now is going to provide. But notice who they're complaining. They're complaining against the Lord. He, the other Yahweh, the Father, hears your complaints against Jesus. Did you catch that? That's amazing. It's all over the Old Testament. It'll say things like this in the Psalms. My Lord said to my Lord, sit at your, my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Now, when Jesus brought that up to the Jews, they were perplexed. It goofed them up because one is God and the other one's God. And he's telling the other God, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Obviously, it's a reference to the Messiah. And they, he tripped them up by that because it's all over the Old Testament. What's the point? The point is they're complaining directly, directly. They're directing their complaints specifically to Jesus. Pretty bold, pretty bold. And Moses continues to say this. Look what he says. Also, Moses said, this shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints, which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Oh, now they're in hot water. See, what happens to people when they're complaining about the provision that God provides for them, and, and it, it, the provision's going to be in this location, it's going to be in this form, in this timing, and with these people, and here's the provision. When people start complaining about that, and they're like, and I'm saying, you know what? I, I, I don't want to go to Moses, man. I'm tired. That, that dude's crazy. I don't like Moses, man. I wish God would provide another leader. And they'll have Korah's rebellion and all kinds of stuff. I take you back to Cain and Abel. It's the same thing. Cain eventually got tired of going to Abel to get the lambs for sacrifice. So he just, eh, I'm not going through Abel. I'm tired of him. I, I'm going to produce my own uh, offerings to the Lord with fruits and vegetables and whatnot. What starts happening is, the person or the people stop, stop wanting the provision the way God provides it. They want it a different way. They want it their way. And when that starts happening, they start complaining. And this can happen to us. God is saying, I'm giving you two quarts a day. 
in the form, fashion, and place it is, don't complain about it. If you start complaining about it, you're gonna, I know what you're going to do. You're, start, you're, you're going to scapegoat your leadership. You'll blame your husband. You'll blame the, the boss. You'll blame whatever authority is over you. They're idiots. They don't know what they're talking about. Let's blame the pastor. Let's blame the politician. Let's blame this. Let's blame that. Let's blame our parents. Let's blame, you know, the blame game. You start scapegoating because that's what they're doing with Moses and Aaron. They're scapegoating with them. But Moses says, "Uh uh-uh. You know what the deal is? You're complaining against the second person of the Trinity. That's who you're complaining against. You're not, it's not, who are we, he said. So at the end of the day, if you start complaining about the provision, then please understand it's not the leadership you're complaining about. You're complaining to God. That's who you're complaining to. I don't like the way my life went. I don't like how much I have. I don't like how much I don't have. God's not providing for me. And and this is how they'll spiritualize it and sanctify it. So they don't go a, a direct assault against Jesus. This person is the one causing me the problems. It's it's the circumstances of my life. It's the the people in my life that's caused this to me, to me to ha- uh, to be held down and held back and hurt financially and whatever. It's all these other people that are doing things to me. That's a clever way of hiding where your real complaint is. Let me ask you this. Do you think God sees through that? Of course he does. But the longer we play the game of saying, well, I'm not complaining against God. You know, God, you know, no, no, no. No, you are. You are. So you need to be honest and go to God saying, I have this complaint. What will God do? Turn you away? No. He invites you to sit down with him and let's reason this out. Come, let us reason together. And many times I have brought my complaints to the Lord, and you know what he has done? He has given me an attitude adjustment, he has made me think a different way, and he tweaks what I'm thinking. And he adjusts what I'm thinking so I don't keep blaming him for what's happening. And I see the bigger picture. That's going to be very important. You have to go to God, say, God, I don't understand this, but it it appears as if something bad is happening to me. And then if you lay it out before him, all of a sudden he will transform it and let you see it the right way. But if you decide to rail against God and baptize it by blaming others, you will move away from God and you will never get this problem solved. So sometimes in the counseling, you'll see a couple that's mad at each other. And, oh, my, I don't like my husband because they do this. And I don't like my wife because she does this. And there's back and forth, back and forth. And I get it. They're acting like knuckleheads sometimes. I get it. But the real issue, if I drill down a little further, I start realizing, oh, my goodness, this couple is not so much fighting with them, themselves. They're fighting against God. That's the real problem. One of them or both will not submit to God in an area. And because they won't submit to God, it jacks up the whole relationship. But they blame each other for the problem when it's really them and God. That's the problem. So this is what Moses is trying to point out. And the real issue, what's happened is with, with Israel, is Israel is still infantile spiritually. They've just been taken out of Egypt. I mean, it's just like they just got saved. So they're spiritual babies. 
Now, here's what I want to point out. The reason they're complaining and saying that God brought them into the desert to die is because they're taking on the mantle of a victim. Now, victimhood will actually come natural to us from our sin nature. So, once we have enough hits in this life and go through this life and sustain enough hits, the sin nature will instantly make you the victim, make you the hero in the story, and make everyone else the perpetrator or the oppressor. So follow me on this. And so you come to Christ with a victim mentality many times. And that has to be purged out of us in our sanctification. Now, you can't fix yourself. You have to be saved first. And then in the process of conforming to the image of Christ, God will root this victimhood out of you. But you have to grow. You have to learn. You have to use the tools he provides. That's what he's trying to do with Israel. But right now, they're in complete victimhood. You brought us out in the desert to die. That's a victim mentality. Now, here's the thing. The churches, if you look at this victim concept, the churches in America have done the most damage to Christians in making Christians remain victims. What do you mean? Please follow me or I'll lose you like a wet bar of soap in a shower. So hang on. Churches now are becoming woke, right? They're woke to gender dysphoria. They're woke to uh, uh, social justice. They're woke to whatever, wokeism, all the things that go under wokeism. And, and they become social justice warriors. It's a false gospel. It's not the real gospel. So what happens in these churches and why it spreads so fast in these churches is because these churches and pastors have never went beyond salvation. What do you mean? Some of these churches, all they do is have an evangelism event every Sunday. It's okay to do that once in a while, but who is the church for? Believers. And believers are supposed to be edified. And the only way you edify believers is you push them towards sanctification, you push them into growth because you teach that way. You teach to growth. Evangelism is one thing, and it needs to happen outside. But in the church, the churches are supposed to push and encourage growth because we've got to get the victim out of you. We've got to get all kinds of other things out of all of us. And if the church doesn't push sanctification, if it doesn't push growth then the person still remains a perpetual victim in their stuff. Now, connect dots with me. Why do you think wokeism works so good in immature churches? Wokeism comes from Marxism, doesn't it? Cultural Marxism. Marxism teaches what? There's an oppressor and the oppressed class. It teaches everybody that they are victims and that there's someone holding them down. There's someone attacking them. There's someone that's hurting them. So you have an oppressor and oppressed class. And so at the end of the day, the reason wokeism is working in the churches is because they are appealing to the sin nature of people who have not 
grown in their walk with the Lord and are not past being a victim. And so wokeism is spreading like wildfire. And, and let me change the term. Marxism is spreading like wildfire in the American church because of the church's immaturity. So when you go to a Joel Olstein's church or a Rick Warren's church and they're teaching a watered-down version of the Bible, that church is susceptible for people becoming victims, or sorry, remaining victims in their life. They're never going to grow past that. But this is what God is trying to do to Israel. You're, you have a victim mentality. Now, I need to stop there because I'm out of time. and We'll continue this message through the manna. But let me give you a positive reward about the manna. The manna will come again one day, and you perhaps might be able to eat it one day. It's coming again. According to Isaiah 41, it will come to them in the tribulation when they're hiding from the Antichrist. It's possible they come. If you read that passage, it hints that water and food are going to be provided for Israel, and perhaps the manna again will appear for the remnant of Israel. But the manna then is promised to the church but only specific believers. What kind of believers? Now, follow me on this, because this is going to directly apply to the church today in America. Jesus promises the Pergamum church that if they overcome the particular sin that they're doing, they will be promised to be given the hidden manna. The hidden manna is termed that way because when they took some of the manna, God made them put manna in the Ark of the Covenant... And they had the manna in this golden jar that stayed in the Ark of the Covenant perpetually to remind them of God's provision, okay? That's what we get the term hidden manna. And Jesus is promising believers who overcome the Pergamum issue that I will give you the hidden manna when you're in heaven. And what that means is a life enhancement in the eternity, something that will be greater in your experiences with the Lord in the Messianic kingdom and eternity. I don't know all the full ramifications, but you're going to want it, okay? You're going to want the hidden manna. But how do you get it? Because not every body gets it. You have to overcome Pergamum. What's Pergamum? The church of Pergamum, not only historically, but in the era of Pergamum, dealt with this one issue. It married itself to the state. As the state saw fit to marry itself with the church, the church saw the, the, the benefit of marrying with the state, and what we call is an unholy marriage, an unholy alliance cr- was created, and it came about in the 300s A.D. There are still state churches today. And when it did that, it became corrupted. It compromised with the state. Now, I want to bring this into today. Churches are now conforming to what their governments want them to do. We just saw one year of it. We just saw one year of it. And if you think it's going to go away, you're not. You're going to watch more and more of the churches go along with the government. Now, I'm not talking about not submitting proper to a proper authority. I'm telling you, when the government forbids Christian practices of religion, that's what I'm talking about, which it did this last year. That means that when the church decides to marry itself with the state, it is committing the sin of Pergamum. 
They don't get the hidden manna. They will be forbidden to have the manna. Will they be in heaven? Of course, but we're talking about rewards. So my point is, folks, in the days ahead, you have to have enough strength. Our church has to have enough strength not to get into a deal with the government in order to exist. If we do that, we will lose that reward. Let's stay strong in the Lord and not compromise with the government. Let's pray. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.